0: Okay, once you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> this is a text that I have not uh, preached for uh, Christmas season. And uh, so, that's so what I wanted to turn to today. Matthew chapter 2, and let's read together uh, verses 1. Let's get down through verse 6 for now, okay? Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you Bethlehem in the land of Judea are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now, when we come to the biblical accounts of the birth of Jesus... uh, I think you notice a difference between what you read in the Bible and what you see in television shows and Christmas cards and songs that you sing, okay? There, there tends to be an embellishment of the biblical accounts in the modern tellings of them, okay? The, the stories get bigger. Uh, things seem to get added from tradition, from legend, and on and on we could go, in this story, that happens. Uh, most Christmas cards you see, you have uh, three wise men with crowns, and uh, they're in the, in the uh, context of the, the manger setting, in the stable, um, and there's always three of them, okay? First thought is this. We don't know how many there were. There probably weren't just three. There were three gifts, but probably not just three. Secondly, they weren't kings, okay? Uh, it fits well into the lyrics of the songs that we sing, but... They weren't kings. They were advisors to kings. And they didn't show up at the manger. They came to, verse 11 tells us, the house where Jesus was. All right, so it's almost like you go over these stories and say, okay, well, that's, I have to pause for a minute. That's devastating, okay? Uh, I, need to, I need to rethink the story, okay? Uh, next thing you're going to tell me is there isn't a Santa Claus or something like that, okay? Um, what I want you to realize is this. The story is not sensationalized because if you sensationalize the story, you lose the focus of the story, all right? You start looking at cards and shows and pictures, and they all make much of the trappings around the Savior and don't make much of the Savior, all right? What is Matthew doing? Matthew is writing historical narrative to give you the truth about Jesus, truth that will change your life the trappings around it the traditions the legends will have no effect on you perhaps an emotional quick hit but it won't change your life substantively so when we go back to the story the biblical story the historical narrative we find the truth that god has inspired in his word in this case by matthew a disciple of jesus who were the magi who were these that we called the wise men they were certainly this. They were influential advisors, highly educated, spiritual leaders in their time who spent and put forth a lot of effort reading the stars. Okay, that's what they did. They were astrologers or astronomers, you may want to call them. They were from the east, originating, from an, originating probably from the area of Persia that we would know as today modern Iraq. It's about 600 miles from the land of Palestine. Okay, So if you're going to take a trip from Jerusalem to the place where these gentlemen come from, it's probably the area of Iraq, about a 600-mile journey. If you take 20 miles a day, that journey would take how long? The quick math, approximately 30 to 40 days. Okay, If you're stretching things, 20 being about the maximum, traveling in a caravan, which was probably how they traveled, not just three people on camels going across sand. Okay, probably a caravan, a number of people. Because when they get to town, what happens? All of Jerusalem is vibrating with the news of their arrival. It's not likely the three people walking into a town would cause such a, an effect. Okay, but that's what happened. One question that comes up then is this. What prompted their search? Why did they make such an incredible journey at such great personal sacrifice? What caused that to happen? Okay, verse 2 tells us, in looking to the east, they saw a star. They saw something in the heavens that was at least unusual to them. Okay, and they're looking at it, and the question is this. Why would seeing the unusual star cause them to travel to where it appears to be hovering over or resting over? Why would they make such a journey? Is there anything in the biblical evidence that would cause us to think about Or wonder about that. Okay. Here I think is part of the answer. Numbers 24 and verse 17. A writing from Moses. Here's what Moses says. He says I see him. But not now. I behold him. But not near. A star will come out of Jacob. And a scepter. Will rise. Out of Israel. Okay, think about that. Okay, I see him, but it's foggy, it's vague. Sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? Now we see through a glass dimly, then face to face, there's this sense in which Moses is anticipating. He says, A star will rise out of Jacob. What is Jacob? Jacob is the nation of Israel, and a scepter will rise out of Israel, a kingly ruler will rise out of this nation, and it will somehow be associated with the star. That's a little bit of evidence that we see at the beginning of this account. Okay, It's also likely that the Magi, if they're from the area of Babylon, if you go back in their history about 700, or 600, let's say 600 years, about 605 to 586, Jews were taken from the land of Palestine, where? To a place called Babylon, under the leadership of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar took nobility and royalty from Israel. When he destroyed the city of Jerusalem, he took the elite class of people, transported them to a place called Babylon, and there he schooled them, and then they became part of this group called the Magi. Okay, they are part of this group. Daniel was one of them. Okay, if you go to the book of Daniel chapter 2, you'll find that the Magi are called in before King Nebuchadnezzar to interpret dreams things that he was experiencing, their advisors. Daniel is wrapped up in that group of people, probably along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three friends that went there with him. Okay, they had an influence on Babylon. They had an influence on these people called the Magi. Daniel, while he was there, wrote a book called the Book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel makes a fascinating prophecy in chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Daniel says this, he says, In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds. Okay, which would point to what? The one that he sees is the Son of Man, but he's coming with the clouds. Clouds always in the Old Testament are associated with deity. The coming of God on the mountain. The coming of God on the tabernacle, right? It's the picture of deity. There's, there's something of a, of a godly king in this picture. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Now listen to this. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. Folks, that never happened with Israel in the Old Testament. You would never have with Israel in the Old Testament this company of people from all nations. But there's a prophecy of that happening here. His domain, this king, is everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. Okay, the one who that describes according to Old Testament scriptures is the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming ultimate king of kings and Lord of lords. Okay, so when when Moses talks about that coming king of Lord of Lords, what's he talking about? He talks about a star rising and a scepter rising that points forward to the anticipation of an amazing and glorious king. Okay, that's that's the background of this account as we read it. So what is it that prompted their search? Looking to the east, they say, we saw a star. They make connections perhaps between the writings of the Old Testament pointing forward to a coming king that would be the king of kings And Lord of Lords. And when they saw that star, somehow God prompted them through that miraculous evidence to go to a place called Jerusalem, to go to a land called Palestine, where they would find this They come saying, okay, where is he? We've come. We saw his star. We have come to worship him. So the focus of this text then, if you look at verse 2, and if you look at verse 11, is worship. We have come to worship him. Verse 11. They walk into the house. They see the Christ child. What do they do? They just, they disintegrate before him and are changed. They worship. They see the king of kings and their life is altered by his very presence and revelation. God's aim in the world is to do what? It is to exalt the glory of Christ. As the Savior for mankind, it is to glory and revel in what He has done to bring people into a personal relationship with Himself, so that in His saving work, Jesus Christ will be glorified. So, Philippians 2 and verse 11, what does Paul say? Wherefore, in light of this saving work of Jesus on the cross, God, after the resurrection, has highly exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, what would happen? People would give honor to Christ. That's the end game of God's work in creation. That's the end game of God's work in missions and in saving souls. So that Jesus Christ would be the focus of our attention because only Jesus Christ is worthy of full glory, honor, and praise. All right, and that we use a word to summarize that response of our hearts the word is worship. Okay? So, I want you to work through this text with me, looking at lessons that we learn about worship. What do we learn about Christ-exalting living? What do we learn about that from this text? Okay, and I think the first thing that we learn is this. God is a missionary. God is a missionary. You see, the main actor in this text, we tend to think is what? Well, it's the Magi, and it's Herod, and it's the scribes, and it's Mary and Joseph, and No. The main actor in this text is God. And what is God doing in this text? He's bringing about a miraculous sign that has as its aim the attracting of people into the presence of Christ where they will fall down before him and own him as king of their lives. God is a missionary God. And in this text, he is attracting who? He's attracting the Magi. Who are the Magi? If you lived in Israel at this time, you would have said the Magi are outsiders. They're Gentiles. They're they're the unclean. They're not allowed in the inner sanctum of the temple where God is. But in this text, what do you find God doing? You find God ripping away the tabernacle, ripping away the the, the temple. And what do you have? You have God in flesh, in a house. And what does the Father do? Father attracts people from different nations to come. And you'll notice this. As you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you know what Matthew does? He gives you a genealogy that ties Jesus to the royal line. He tells you in the end of chapter 1 that he is born. Chapter 2, what does he do? Matthew introduces foreigners. Why? Because that's the heart of God. And that is the intention of you go all the way back into the Old Testament. Go to Genesis chapter 12. What does it say? God gives a promise to Abraham about the coming of the Messiah. And at the end of that promise, what does he say? Through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Folks, understand this. The vast majority of us in this room are not Jewish in our background, are we? The vast majority of us in this room are Gentiles. You know who the Magi are? They're the first representatives of the fulfillment of the purpose of God in the coming of Jesus. All right, they are the first. Entry of the nations into the presence of the Messiah. They are the beginning of the mission work of God. And God is the one who attracted them there through this incredible, powerful, miraculous sign. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, talking of Jesus, says this. It says, arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth darkness is over all the people, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your appearing. Think about that. Think about that. Magi that were advisors to kings do what? They come attracted by God, a missionary God, into the presence of Christ where they can know him. And here's the thing that amazes me out of this text. In this text, God is the one taking the initiative. God is the one moving. What are we to do? We're to imitate God. How do we imitate God in the world we live in? We need to be missionaries, right? Simeon understood this in Luke chapter 2 and verse 30. He's waiting for this coming king. What does he say? My eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared in the sight of all people, a light for, of revelation for the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. What do you find? You find that the work of God, the mission work of God is multinational. He is seeking and attracting people from all different places in all different kinds of ways. So here's the question I would give you this morning. Okay, God is a missionary. Am I? You see, because what he's doing in this text is attracting people from all different places in all kinds of ways to come to know Christ. That's the heart of God. Is that my heart? I mean, think of the text in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you are the light of the world. What does that mean? It means God has given us, he has lit us on fire for a purpose. That we would go and imitate God in our sphere of influence, attracting people to what? To the light that has lit us, to the light that is reflected through us. We're not the primary light, but we are his primary representatives here today. To make the light of the good news of Jesus known. Marie, I believe this is the reason you're going to Cambodia, right? Is to make the light of Jesus known. The reason Victor John has given his life to serve in India is what? Because God is a missionary God. And when we are seeking those that are lost, we are never more like God than when we are doing that. Because in that, we're imitating the Son of God who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Folks, listen. Once God captures your heart and changes it by His grace, whether you're an insider or an outsider, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. He transforms you. And He sends you to go and do the things that He did. He is a missionary God second thing I want you to see this morning is this, emerges in verse 2. As these men recount their experience in their homeland, they say in verse 2, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star, and our text says what? It says in the east, what are, what are they saying? From the west, they saw the star where? In the east, okay? So it's a, it's a matter of Perspective. Okay, so from where they were in the west, they looked towards the east and they saw the star and were attracted to it for some reason. This is what's not explained in the text. Okay, the text doesn't tell us why they went. All that we know is that it was so fascinating and amazing that they could not help but go and see what this star was all about. So what are we learning in this? And this, this is a simple observation, okay? God in heaven has unlimited resources to attract people to his name. And you know what he does? He unleashes those resources to attract people to come and to know and to worship and to enjoy and to love and to celebrate Jesus. Folks, do you ever wonder why when you gather together in corporate worship, you... And, and, and I, hope you, I hope you sense that when you do that, there is something unique in praise. There's something that becomes clearer about the work of God as together our voices sing to Him and sing praises to Him. Do you ever notice that? That truth becomes clearer, God becomes nearer. God is attracting the nations and He uses all kinds of things to bring us into a place where we can know Him and enjoy Him. And so the question comes up is this. It's what is the What is the star? Okay, and you can find various conclusions that people have come to through time and over history. Here's what we do know. We know it was a work of God, designed by God, and it captured the attention of these wise men who were used to reading the stars. But if you go back in Daniel, here's what you'll find. You'll find that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar, would share a dream with the, the magi, and they would come back with a fascinating interpretation. Where they got the interpretation was always suspect. Why? Because kings didn't take lightly to bad interpretations of dreams. Okay So what's going on here? I mean, here's a star that is so bad ma- It's a sign so magnificent that it causes them to travel 600 miles to see what it is, and when they get there, somehow they already know, this is points to a king. This has to be about a king of kings, about a powerful king. And so they make this journey in response to the resources that God is unleashing to bring people to himself. What is the basic principle? Here's the principle. God, in this case, moved heaven and earth, literally, to attract people to himself. He is that kind. He is that gracious. He is that capable in this work of drawing people. And he does this throughout Scripture, doesn't it? Doesn't he? If you read in the Old Testament, you'll find that God speaks through a donkey, right? If you move forward into the book of Acts, what does God do? God uses the miracle of tongues, of people speaking languages they'd never learned, to do what? To attract people to himself. He's a miracle working God. In this case, what does he do? He causes a star to appear in a way that it had never appeared before at the right time to attract foreigners to come and worship. Jesus, and he approached a man called the Apostle Paul, formerly named Saul, on the road to Damascus, and struck him with the bright. He unleashed his resources to gain the attention of those that he was seeking to save. That's what he's doing throughout Scripture. Just watch and watch and watch, and you'll see it over and over again. What should that do for us as Christians? <clears throat> you know what it should do? It should conquer the fear that we have of sharing the good news. And we we say to people, "Merry Christmas." Okay. Do we take time to explain to them what this is about? Do we take time to explain to them the glory of Jesus? Knowing that as we do that, Father is already pouring out His capacities and His resources to do what? To make our work in evangelism effective. He's gone before these guys. He's attracted them in a powerful way. You go to John chapter 4, here's what you find. A woman... Is speaking to Jesus. Jesus says to that woman, He says, The Father is seeking worshipers. John 4 and verse 25. Father is seeking worshipers. Folks, does God ever fail in something that He attempts to do? Is He known to attempt things and just don't come up a little bit short? Does that ever happen to God? No. Jesus came to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. That mission was never in doubt as to its success. Because when we go in the power of the Spirit to share the work of God in seeking to save people. And seeking to share the good news of Christ. What happens? God joins with us in that work. That's what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28. He says, in sending you into all the nations, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age that we are divinely assisted in this work that God has graciously called us to do. And when we share the gospel, what are we doing? We are cooperating with the unlimited resources of God to see people come to saving faith in Christ. Why are we usually afraid? Because we think we're going to get asked a question we can't answer. We usually think, uh, you know, we may not get the story right. We, we, We live in fear in evangelism and sharing Jesus. You know what God wants us to do? I think God wants us to move in his power He's a missionary God who unleashes resources to seek and to save those who don't know Jesus. He wants us to take the goodness of Christ's coming, make it known to people, and allow them to enjoy the glory of what it is to worship Jesus. Verses 3 through 8, the story takes a turn. It says, when Herod heard this, this coming of magi from the east who are seeking a king of the Jews, Herod in his mind begins to drift back to what? Old Testament prophecies about a king of kings, about a Messiah. So in verse 3, when he hears it, he's disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Why is he disturbed? Because he's a bit of a paranoid king. He loves his position. He loves his possessions. He's a man who was known for having killed his wife because he thought she was a threat. He was a man who had recently killed two of his sons because he thought they were threats. He was a crazed king with unbelievable power. But what did he know? The Jews had come to seek the king of the Jews. And in his mind, what did they do? It sparked thoughts about the Messiah from the Old Testament. About an ultimate king. For the city of Jerusalem, they all began to feel agitated. Why? Because when Herod got angry, bad things happened. You go to the second half of chapter 2, and what happens in the city of Bethlehem after the Magi leave? Herod goes in and massacres a number of young children. He was a horrific man. And the coming of Jesus for him was unsettling. In this text, you'll find three responses to the coming of the Magi to see Christ. And I believe they basically are this. The three responses to the presence of Jesus. Two of them are from, from people who refuse to worship him. Verses five and six. Or let's just read verse, verse five. Herod calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he says to them where is the christ to be born now here's to me this is fascinating herod is asking a question that will be based on old testament scriptures from the book of micah that are 700 years old he's saying to them would you tell me from the old scriptures when the christ is to be born what would you think you would think that if they come up with evidence about where christ is to be born that he's going to go and worship him and so you would think would scribes and pharisees right But what do you run into? You run into a remarkable blindness, a stunning hard-heartedness in response to the message. They come to him and say, "Well, uh, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And it's just like they're reading the newspaper. There's no movement in their hearts. There's not any sense in which they say, I saw this star, there's a connection back to Numbers, and let's go worship him. No, I mean, from the religious leaders, what do you find? You find apathy. They are indifferent to the presence of Christ. Why? Because what are they caught up in? They're caught up in religion. They're caught up in prestige. They're caught up in in the position that they have in their society. And so the message of Christ doesn't appeal to their religious mind. And so they're indifferent. They're unmoved. Because they didn't want their life to change. Herod's response is stronger yet. Verses 7 and 8 says, When Herod heard this, he called the magi... Secretly, he called them aside and said to them, Hey, when you find out where the Messiah is born, uh, let me know. Because I want to go and worship him just like you do. Okay, now we know that's a lie because we know later he intends to go there and slaughter this potential opposition. What's Herod's response to Jesus? He's terrified, he is threatened. What amazes me is this the only way he could possibly be threatened is because he knows it to be true. And the same thing for the scribes and Pharisees. But there is this hard-heartedness, this, for Herod, a a, a deeper concern about what? Saving his throne. He's more concerned about his, his, his political standing than he is about his heart and personal salvation. To me, it's stunning and sad. Because when the Magi leave to go and to find the Christ child, after they heard it, verse 9, they went on their way following the same star leading to the town of Bethlehem. What does the town of Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem, mean? You know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. And in Bethlehem at that time, who was there? The bread of life. Five and a half miles. The scribes hear the miraculous coming, they interpret the scriptures with utter accuracy and are unmoved. And the bread of life waited for them. But because they were caught up in, in life as they know it, in the comfort of life, in their station, in their position, the news of Jesus, like it was like throwing darts at a center block wall. They hit. Failed to penetrate and fell. And folks, this morning, can I just say this to you? If you have heard the message of Christ, here's what the Bible says. It says, don't harden your heart as Israel did over and over. This is this, one of the most stunning hardenings of the heart of Israel that you'll see in Scripture. Clear evidence, miraculous evidence, the Messiah is here. Ah, no, thanks. Why? Because if we go, then we become a threat to Herod. So we want to protect our position. Herod, nah, no, thanks. And they missed the bread of life. They missed the one who would come to alter their lives forever. Jesus said this. He said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. You will only come to Jesus when you are willing to experience an altered life, a changed life. But there's a third response to Jesus in this story. It's the response of the magi. What is their response? All I can deduce from the story is this. Their response is a response of simple, obedient faith. They see a star. They connect it. We don't know what they connected to. We don't know if God told them, go and follow that star. When you follow that light, you will find the light of life. We don't know. But here's what we know. They leave from their hometown at great personal sacrifice with great gifts. And they depart. On this five, six hundred mile journey. And they get to Jerusalem. And they go into the town. And they're just like, hey where is he? (laughs) They're like, where's who? Where's the Messiah? Where's the king of the Jews? We heard he was, we come to worship him. They call him in. Send him down to Bethlehem. They get out of the uh, meeting with Herod. The little closed session. And what happens? The star appears again. And leads them over the place where the Christ child is. Okay, and so what do they do? Okay, there it is. And they just immediately are responsive. They give obedient faith. And verse 10 tells you what they experience as they obey God in this way. They come out of this meeting. The star moves ahead of them. When they saw the star, verse 10, they were overjoyed. Uh, Some of your translations say they rejoiced with great rejoicing. It's because there's a multiplicity of words in the Greek text that talk about joy that is an abundant joy that comes to the heart of who? It comes to the heart of those that are willing to sacrifice their prestige, their position in life, their sinfulness, their wickedness, and to come to Jesus. And when they start to move towards Jesus, what happens? Joy begins to amp up. It begins to rise in their soul. And that's what these men and the rest of their entourage are experiencing a joy that is for them unspeakable. And it's in that sense that the song that we sing is completely accurate. They're rejoicing with great joy. They're happily happy. That's the kind of wording that. is. They're happily happy. They're joyfully joyful. They're, they're, it, one word doesn't cover it. That's what Jesus does. Think of the sadness, folks. Think of this. Those that know about Christ, but harden their heart and the word bounces off. All of the evidence that God gives. But these move in obedience and that move of obedient faith leads to joy and worship. But it's always preceded by what? Self-sacrifice. That's what Jesus said, didn't he? He said, if any of you wants to come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. Then follow me. Folks, why do some people not come to Jesus? Because they don't want their life to change. But folks, listen, you cannot have Jesus without a changed life. When he comes, he always renovates. And for these men, what did he do? They they disintegrate in his presence and are, I believe, regenerated in his presence. That's what the good news does to you. It will destroy your self-confidence. It will destroy your prestige. It will destroy your accomplishments. It will destroy religion, which is a joyful relief to have the bondage of religion stripped away, the need to perform stripped away. He will strip you spiritually naked and dress you in clothes of righteousness. That's the aim of God here, isn't it? Attract Gentiles the first foreigners to come to Christ, who are simply seeds, they're the beginning of the work that God is going to do in attracting all nations to Himself. That work is completed when? When you get into the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and people from where? Every tongue, tribe, and nation. From India and China, from America and from Israel, and from Iraq, they are bowing down to do what? To worship the King of Kings. People that have experienced disintegration and were reintegrated by the power of God, clothed in righteousness, made new, full of joy. Folks, that's what God does. That's what this this gospel message is all about. And what's amazing is that as they respond in obedient faith, joy comes, that joy is followed by what? It's followed by two things. It's followed by a glad surrender, a falling down. Right? First thing that happens... And then what is there? Then there's the release of resources. Right? Because they came with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There is this glad surrender for the glory. Fell down and worshipped him. They said, you are high and we are low. Before the child, the Christ child. Men of dignity, men of of royal background. They advised kings in the presence of Christ. What did they say? Nothing. (laughs) Okay. They fall down. And they begin to worship him. Why? Because Matthew 5 and verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. They came. And when they saw Jesus, they fully surrendered themselves to him. And they gladly surrendered their stuff, their precious things. Why? Because prestige melts in the presence of Christ. All of our righteousness, it melts in the presence of Christ. It appears like what it is, filthy rags. You know what you want to do? You want to get rid of it. Because there is something more glorious, more worthwhile. Why the gifts? Why does God call Christians to be people that give of themselves and of their... Why does God call us to do that? What is He trying to do? What is He seeking to accomplish in our life? Here's what God is doing. In giving of our time, of our resources, of our lives to others, what are we doing? We are giving up that which to us is precious in order that the preciousness of Christ might become more real. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Why wouldn't he follow Christ? Because his possessions were more precious to him than Christ. Why is it that at times in our lives Jesus is not precious? Can I suggest something? Can I suggest that sometimes we're holding on to temporal things? We're valuing temporal relationships over the relationship. We're valuing temporary possessions over ultimate riches that are ours in Christ. In whom we're bound up, Paul says in Colossians 2, all things. So that if you have Christ, what do you have? You have everything. And when you have everything, what happens? You become a joyful giver. Joyful giving is the way we break the bondage of precious things for the one who is most precious. Isn't that the story of Mary who came, also came to Christ and fell on his presence and broke open a bottle of ointment that was worth a year's wages? And everybody in the room is like, what are you doing? And you ask her, why did she do it? Because Jesus Christ was more precious to her than anything. And Jesus Christ became more precious to her when she made the most precious available to him. She loved Christ. How did she do that? She had a glad surrender of self and a glad surrender of possessions to the king of kings. These men walk in, are undone, and everything in their hands falls at his feet. And isn't that in heaven what one day we will do? You know what the Bible says? It says that God will give us crowns. And when we stand in the presence of Christ, what do we do with those crowns, those Acknowledgements. What do we do? It's like, you know what God wants us to do, I think, in our daily life? To become people who learn to do this. Because when we do this, we value Christ more. God is a missionary God who unleashes unbelievable resources to attract people to himself. When he does it, some respond with indifference. Some respond with hostility. Some some respond with faith. And if you have, You know this, Joy. If you've trusted Jesus, you know what it is to be undone and remade by his glorious grace. If you sense him calling you today, can I ask you to do this? Can I encourage you to do this? Cry out to him. Say, Jesus, today is the end of indifference and apathy for me. The truth I know, I'm responding. Or you might say, today is the end of hostility for me. I've been fighting you, and I'm coming. And for every Christian here, what should the call in our hearts be? Go and be a missionary. And when you go and you surrender your life to God, he will unleash his unlimited resources to make your work successful. For his glory. For your good. And for the joy of all people that know him. Come and worship. That's the theme of this text. And I hope that over the next day and a half, as you think of his coming, you will realize, King of kings, Lord of lords a threat to my personal power, the joy when I surrender. Give your life to him. He is worthy. He is worthy. Let's bow our heads in prayer.